0: Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. All right, I want to thank everyone for returning for another week of military murder. If you're listening to this episode, just a reminder that this is part two of a two-part miniseries on the Gainesville Ripper. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly encourage you to pause and listen to part one first so that you're all caught up. Last week, I left off after five co-eds were killed in Gainesville, Florida. While a Louisiana native by the name of Cindy was vacationing in the Florida panhandle, she heard on the news that 5 coeds had been murdered in their homes at night in the span of 72 hours. During the news segment, there was something that stood out to Cindy as she watched. She recalled an unsolved triple murder in Shreveport, Louisiana that took place roughly 10 months earlier. Something about the Florida murders struck her as familiar. The feeling kept nagging at her until eventually she gave in and called Crime Stoppers and told them they should investigate a Louisiana native by the name of Danny Rowling. And that's where I will pick up today. Join me today as I bring you the conclusion of the Gainesville Ripper. Now, let's keep digging. This story was researched and written by one of our very own listeners and fan club members, Myrtle. The sources for this episode are identical to those listed in part one, so I will not list them here today. Danny Harold Rowling was born on May 26, 1954, to James and Claudia Rowling in Shreveport, Louisiana. James, the father, was a decorated Korean War veteran and police officer, and Claudia was a homemaker. Despite his accolades, James is described as being a horrible husband and father. He constantly fought with and abused his wife, Claudia. The perfect example was when James exploded with anger at his wife. When just two weeks after his wedding, Claudia found out she was pregnant. James didn't want kids and he resented Danny when he was born to the couple. When Danny was just a baby, he didn't crawl the way James expected him to crawl. So James took it upon himself to kick a baby and beat him. James was hotheaded and was triggered easily. In today's day and age, we could safely say he may have suffered from PTSD from his experiences, both as a police officer and as a veteran who served in war. But still not an excuse. Some reports state that James suffered from mental illness, but it's unclear which illnesses he may have suffered from. But even though James didn't want kids to begin with, the family actually had another child after Danny a young boy named Kevin, who was born in 1955. And sadly, after Kevin was born, James's abuse of the family escalated. The boys grew up in a home filled with hatred and violence. Danny was constantly reminded that he was never wanted by his father. At one point, Claudia was hospitalized after experiencing a mental breakdown. And in another incident, she attempted suicide by cutting her wrist. She probably did that to escape the physical and emotional pain that James caused. Every time Claudia left the home, she would eventually return to the abuse. In the eyes of the Rolling Boys, they were taught that women were to be abused rather than loved and cherished. As the years went on, the abuse continued for Claudia and the boys. When Danny was only three years old, Claudia had had enough. So she left the family home, but she didn't leave with the kids she left alone, leaving James to have unfettered access to abuse his sons. While Claudia was gone, though, James begged and pleaded her to come home. And after six months, she eventually returned. A few years later, James found the puppy while he was at work and he brought the puppy home. Danny loved the little dog so much, but his father couldn't let that little boy be happy. Even though James was the one that brought the puppy to the house, James beat the dog regularly until eventually the poor thing's body couldn't take it anymore. Danny was holding the puppy in his arms when it died. He was only five years old. Can you imagine the devastation? A few years later, Danny failed the third grade due to being absent too many times. He was always out sick and to top it off, the school wrote that he had this inferiority complex. Not only that, but he had low impulse control and aggressive tendencies. I wonder why. James was a cruel SOB to his sons and it was showing in their public displays at school. Danny and his brother weren't allowed to have birthday parties and they weren't allowed to celebrate holidays. James would often tie the boys up as a form of punishment and he would sit on their chests, blocking them from breathing. When Danny was just 10 years old, James attempted to teach his sons to drive. Yes, you heard that correctly. Danny was only 10 years old when his dad was trying to teach him how to drive, which whatever it is, what it is. But anyway, when Danny, a 10 year old, didn't use the clutch correctly, James hit Danny in the face and berated him for not learning how to drive correctly at the ripe age of 10 years old. With all the abuse going on back home, it's not surprising to learn that Danny failed third grade yet again. Claudia tried to leave James again, and this time her very own son begged her not to come back. But she did anyways. She always came back. The beatings continued as Danny grew older, but with time, the beatings came with a heavy dose of humiliation, too. On one occasion, Danny didn't get a haircut for school. So James beat him with his belt buckle and shaved his head. The kids at school teased Danny and called him names like Bigfoot and Sasquatch. When James caught Danny drinking, he dragged him home by his neck and used his police connections to have Danny thrown in jail for two weeks. Danny was only 12 years old at the time. After this, Danny started running away from home. And he started staying in the woods to escape the reality of his home life, which absolutely sucked. It was while he was a runaway that Danny started having sexual fantasies of killing people. Yes, he used to fantasize sexually about killing people. But not just that. Danny began to masturbate to those fantasies. This really reminds me of John Jubert from episode 64, another serial killer that I covered when he also started having these kinds of fantasies at a very young age. But living in the woods didn't feed Danny's belly, and he would eventually go back home when he was hungry. But then he would venture out again. Danny would eventually venture into other things, though. Things that would get him in trouble. Hi everyone! For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire. Defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4am workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4am and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru, Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code Margo at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your cart and use my code Mama Margo. that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. As time went by, Danny's fantasies weren't enough to get him off. So when he'd sneak out of the house, he became a peeping Tom. But when he was just 14 years old, he was busted by a neighbor when Danny was watching a young girl through her bedroom window as she changed into her cheerleading uniform. Yeah, Danny got a beating after his dad found out about that one. But you know what? Despite everything, Danny had some decent memories of his youth. When he was 15 years old, Danny received a guitar for Christmas. It was a brief happy moment in a mostly miserable life. Danny loved art and music. The art provided a much needed escape for him. The short periods of happiness, however, were overshadowed by moments of anger and violence. As reported in the Orlando Sentinel, a friend said that one time Danny got angry and threw a band instrument in school, damaging it. When he got home, his father handcuffed him, called the police station again, and had a patrol take Danny to a juvenile detention center for the next two weeks. It was the second time in his life that his father, the abusive a-hole, had him locked up. Now, Danny's friends went on to say that Danny would eventually cry to them about those times in his life. After this ordeal, Danny thought that his whole life was ruined. After this, he would continue to run away and camp in the woods to escape the abuse of his father. As reported in the Orlando Sentinel, the neighborhood kids called Danny Rambo because he liked to dress in camouflage and he would shadow box as he jogged down the street. By 1971, Danny was in the 10th grade and he decided to drop out of high school. But you know what? He had enough credits to actually receive a high school equivalent diploma. And as soon as Danny turned 17 years old, he trotted down to the local Navy recruiter's office. And he was told that because he wasn't 18, he needed his parents' permission to enlist. So Danny threatened his father by telling him that he was going to run away for good if his dad didn't sign the enlistment paperwork. So his dad was like, "Okay, whatever. And he signed. But and this is a big but here. Danny actually failed one of the naval enlistment tests. So Danny was back at square one. What would he do now? Well, what most people often do when they can't get into one military branch is they decide on another military branch. And that's exactly what Danny did. This time he tried the Air Force. And guess what? It worked. Soon, Danny was on his way to the United States Air Force. Danny went to boot camp and after technical training to become a security police officer at Lackland, he was stationed at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida. It was there that Danny was introduced to drugs. He started taking LSD and smoking pot. Now he took a lot of LSD. In 1972, when he was only 18, he was locked up after dropping acid over a hundred times during the year. Now, I don't know what it's like to drop acid. But a hundred times in a year seems like a lot. I mean, maybe that would be pretty detrimental to your body. But what about your brain? Apparently, Danny was on an LSD trip when he lost his virginity and he would later say that he regretted it the next morning. Danny was going really far down the drug rabbit hole, so much so that eventually he was caught with drugs on his person and the Air Force locked him up for possession and for disobeying an order. He was busted down one stripe, and despite all of the illegal activity, he still received an honorable discharge for his two-year stint in the Air Force. And at this point, Danny was quite literally back at square one, and with no more Air Force, where would he go? Danny didn't have anywhere to go after he was discharged from the Air Force other than back to Shreveport, Louisiana, where he moved in with his grandfather. Now, Danny started attending church and he met a young woman named O'Mather Ann Halko. Danny felt like God Himself gave her to him. They quickly married after O'Mather found out she was pregnant and their daughter Kylie Danielle was born in 1975. Now, a married man and a father, Danny felt the pressure of trying to provide for a family at the ripe old age of 20. He worked two jobs trying to make ends meet, but he gave in to his old habits and started drinking and smoking pot again. He stopped going to church and he would run off for days at a time without telling his wife where he was going. At this point, Danny became irrational. He was claiming to see Jesus, demons, UFOs and ghosts. And his wife was scared enough that she called Danny's parents, Claudia and James, because she needed help when he stopped going to work. Now, James, Danny's father, handled things in his usual brutal way. He came to the house and held a knife to Danny's throat, threatening him, telling Danny that he better take care of his family or he, James himself, would take care of Danny. I.e., he either meant that he was going to beat his ass or that he was going to kill him. But his father's threats meant nothing to him anymore. Eventually, Danny was caught peeping into windows again and was brought back home to his wife by a police officer. Now, his wife was so distraught over everything that had been happening that it wasn't surprising when she turned to an old flame for some kind of normalcy. When Danny caught his wife having an affair with her ex-boyfriend, he beat the boyfriend up and confronted his wife with a gun holding it to her head. O'Mather, his wife, had finally had enough and she told him she was leaving. Danny turned the gun to his own head, threatening to kill himself if she didn't stay. But O'Mather was done. She couldn't do it anymore and she filed for separation. Danny was completely devastated when the divorce was finalized just six months later. O'Mather was gone and his daughter was gone. And he would never see his daughter again. At this point, Danny had nowhere to go but down. His voyeurism increased, creeping around houses and watching women through their windows. He started committing armed robberies throughout the South, and he took it a step further when he raped a woman who resembled his wife. He was caught in 1979 in Georgia and incarcerated, and this started a cycle of Danny being in prison, being released, committing armed robberies, getting caught, going back to prison, then starting the cycle all over again. Throughout the 1980s, Danny spent time in prisons in Georgia, Alabama and Mississippi for different robberies. But Danny sucked at just about everything, including being incarcerated. Yep. Danny was less than the ideal prisoner, as you can imagine, and on one occasion, he escaped from a work crew when serving time in Georgia, and he tried to scale the wall at a prison in Alabama. After he was released in 1985, he went to California to spend some time with an aunt, uncle and cousin there. Eventually, after his stint in California, he spent about six or seven months hitchhiking all over the country. He ended up in Florida with different relatives, but then went back to California. Danny decided he wanted to go back to Shreveport and he hitched a ride to Colorado where he stayed for a couple of weeks before going to South Dakota for another two weeks. Eventually, he made his way to Georgia for some time where he went back to his old routines of robbing grocery stores. But this time he stole a car, too. Now, he hadn't made it back to Shreveport yet. When police caught him in Georgia and they put him back in jail for another four years. At some point, Danny jumped into the Snake River in Jackson, Mississippi, in an attempt to escape, but was caught yet again and brought back to prison. He was eventually paroled in 1988, but Mississippi would only allow him to go on parole if he would go back to Shreveport. Dude had been such a pain in their backside for way too long at this point. They wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted him out of their state. So Danny did just that. He went back to Shreveport, Louisiana. This time he moved back in with his parents and found a job in a restaurant. But that didn't last long. On November 4th, 1989, Danny was fired from that restaurant job for missing too many days of work. Wait, what? November 4th of 1989? Coincidence? I think not. Remember the Grissoms from part one of this story? Uh Uh-huh. But when the bodies of Tom Grissom, his daughter Julie, and grandson Sean were found on November 6th, there was nothing that could link Danny to the murders as a suspect. So. Danny continued to roam the streets. In November of 89, Danny got into a fight with his father and in an effort to get away from James, he went out. As he was wandering the streets, he saw a house he had peeked into before. His voyeurism was still in full swing at this point. He broke into the woman's house and he waited for her to come home. Thank goodness she didn't come home. But Danny made himself comfortable in her house watching TV, listening to her stereo, and sampling the alcohol she had in the pantry. When the woman failed to return to her own home, Danny got tired of waiting. He stole about $30 in cash, a bottle of Shiva's Regal, and a thirty-eight caliber revolver. Whoever that homeowner was, that was her lucky day because she never had to meet him. Danny continued to live with his parents, but a few months later, on May 18th, 1990, the poop would hit the fan. Danny and James got into another huge fight, and this was the last straw for Danny. Danny wasn't going to take the bullying from his father any longer. So his father chased him out of the house with a gun. Danny grabbed his own gun went back to the house and shot his father twice. Wait, what? Yes, you heard me correctly. After years of abuse, Danny Rowling shot his father, James, right between the eyes, once in the face, like I said, right between the eyes and once in the stomach. But despite suffering life-threatening injuries, James survived. He's like a freaking cockroach. But James was never the same again. No, no, no. He lost the use of one of his eyes and one of his ears due to the bullet that went through his forehead. Well, after the attempted murder, Danny hightailed his rear out of Shreveport and made his way to Florida. While on the run, Danny broke into a house where he found papers for a deceased man by the name of Michael Kennedy Jr. Danny took those papers along with two more handguns. Now, Danny, on the run with no money and nowhere to go, well, Danny turned to his old ways, robbery. Danny knew that grocery stores were easy money and he went right back to hitting them for quick cash. I guess he was trying to be a gentleman when he committed his robberies because when he robbed the Westwood United Superstore, he thanked them on his way out and asked them to pray for him. This guy is crazy. During this robbery, he got away with one thousand six hundred and sixty one dollars, but apparently it wasn't enough because he went back to the same grocery store a few weeks later and hit them again. The second time he got just over two thousand dollars. Now, with inflation, that means that Danny got close to seventy five hundred dollars in today's dollars from that one grocery store. By July of 1990, Danny jumped on a bus bound for Sarasota, Florida. There, Danny checked into a hotel under the name Michael Kennedy Jr. Does that name ring a bell? Well, that's a deceased man whose paperwork Danny had stolen while in Shreveport. It appears that Danny was attempting to steal this man's identity to obscure his own identity while he was on the run. Because remember, they were looking for him after he shot his father twice. Now, in August, Danny broke into another house. There, he stole a car and drove to Tampa. Once he got there, he broke into several houses and held up a convenience store. Eventually, in August, Danny made his way to Gainesville, Florida, where he set up camp in the woods near the Williamsburg apartments. And well, we all know what happened in Gainesville. Well, on August 27th, which was the day after the Gainesville Rippers' Third victim Krista Hoyt was killed, Danny robbed a first union bank. Luckily, a super awesome teller was able to slip an exploding die pack into the bag along with the cash. Now, as you may recall, a patrol officer spotted a suspicious man, later learned to be Danny Rowling, going into the woods and went in after him in pursuit. When the officer got into the woods, he found Danny's campsite. In the campsite, he found the bag with the money in it, thoroughly soaked with bright red dye. There was also a screwdriver, a gun and a tape recorder with a tape in it. But Danny was nowhere to be found. After the officer found Danny's campsite, Danny was on the run again. But of course, he was going to need some money. The bills he had stolen from the bank were ruined by the exploding dye pack. And, you know, even though Danny had been caught more often than he hadn't been caught, he still always turned to robbery to get fast cash. On September 7th, 1990, Danny walked into an Ocala Winn-Dixie, 40 miles south of Gainesville, and he demanded they give him all the money. He was holding a pistol and the workers complied with Danny's demands. But as the store manager was trying to open the safe, one of the cashiers called the cops. The police pulled into the parking lot and our homeboy Danny escaped in a stolen car. What in the world? When is this guy ever going to get caught? Well, turns out that Danny's luck had finally run out when he crashed the stolen car while the police were hot on his heels. When they took him into custody, Danny reportedly said to the arresting officer, quote, boy, you guys are good, end quote. No, duh, Danny, no, duh. At this point, though, Danny was being taken into custody for robbery. The arresting officers had no idea who they actually had in custody, though, but they would soon find out. Back in Gainesville, the police investigators were still investigating every angle they could think of to find out who killed five Florida co-eds. At this point, they had Ed Humphrey in custody. But the blood type didn't match the semen found at the crime scenes. Could the man that robbed the bank the day Krista Hoyt's decapitated body was found be their guy? Well, they didn't know. So they dug out the evidence, the gun, the screwdriver, the dye stained money in the gym bag and the tape player. And wait for it. When they picked up this cassette player back in August, they had never listened to the tape When they picked it up, what if I had an emoji here, if this were like a Facebook post, I would insert a facepalm emoji. Okay, so let's talk about this tape. Investigators dig out this tape and they press play. And what they heard was disturbing to non hunters. Okay, on the tape, a man is heard describing in great detail how to kill a deer. Specifically, the man says that you have to aim for the lungs. And the police are like, okay, this is kind of weird, whatever. But they keep listening and the man begins to sing a song. But it's not like a famous song, right? No, it's an original that this person on the tape created, I guess, or wrote. And the song lyrics are chilling. The lyrics say, quote, Free Rider, what's your name? You're a killer, a drifter gone insane, end quote. So the police are listening to this and I can only imagine their faces are red and they like probably gulp really deep. Right. What in the world had the police stumbled upon in the woods and why hadn't they listened to it earlier? Well, it wouldn't take the cops too much longer to figure out who made the tape because the man on the tape gives his name during the recording. Danny Harold Rowling. That's correct. And at the end of the tape the man says, quote, "I'm going to sign off for a little bit. I got something I've got to do." End quote. The police later learn that that something the man in the recording was talking about was that he was going to the Gatorville apartments. The cops were kicking themselves in the rear. Why hadn't they listened to the tape back in August when they freaking got the evidence? Once police have that name from the recording, The Gainesville police put Danny Rowling's name into their system. And lo and behold, he was only 40 miles away being held at the Marion County Jail in Ocala. So during this time, they also discovered that Danny Rowling had served in the military. So they petitioned the Air Force for his medical records and they discovered that he had type B blood. Bingo! Of course, a warrant was served on Danny to gather his blood for comparison to the DNA left behind in the apartments in Gainesville. Meanwhile, Danny was still facing charges of armed robbery for the attempted robbery at the Winn-Dixie in Ocala. So at his arraignment on September 17th, which is about 10 days later, it's 1990 still, the judge in the Winn-Dixie trial asked Danny if he had an attorney. And according to an article in the Miami Herald, Danny replied, quote, no, sir, I don't need one. I am guilty, end quote. Okay, but, you know, anyway, Danny would not face trial without counsel, right? After Danny received a public defender, that attorney told investigators not to speak to his client. The defense attorney made it known that they believed Danny was not mentally competent to answer questions. Danny eventually pled guilty to the robbery charges and he faced up to five life terms for the crimes he committed after the murders took place in Gainesville. The DNA testing came back with marked similarities to the samples that had been taken from the semen left behind in the apartments in Gainesville. But the tests weren't conclusive. Remember Ed Humphrey? He was in a mental institution at this point for attacking his grandmother, but he was still a suspect in the stabbings in Gainesville. Now, the five murders had no witnesses except for the killer or killers and the victims who couldn't speak. The victims couldn't speak for themselves, so science had to be their voice. The Gainesville police were extremely interested in obtaining another blood sample from Danny so that they could confirm whether he was a correct match to the DNA left behind at the apartment. Unfortunately, Danny's lawyer was able to deny the courts from allowing the police from taking yet another test sample. In 1991, after sentencing for the Winn Dixie robbery, Danny was sent to the Florida State Prison where some of the most notorious criminals in Florida were incarcerated. Justice, though, was about to have some luck when Danny was in prison and he began to have a toothache because it was infected. So he went to the prison infirmary where that tooth was extracted. It was here that they would get another blood sample from Danny. After the tooth was removed, it was wrapped in gauze and put in an envelope and placed in the trash can. A guard who was assigned to watch Danny while he was having this tooth extracted, he was smart enough to realize, "Hey, there's probably some DNA left behind on that tooth." So, he quickly picked up the envelope from the trash, secured it and alerted the investigators in Gainesville. The tooth was immediately sent to a lab where it underwent testing. Eventually, the tests came back. Danny's DNA was a match. And the tooth evidence was admissible in court. Now, it's a little bit interesting, right, because his defense counsel claimed, well, that tooth could have been anyone's. It was found in the trash. But it was confirmed that on the day of Danny's tooth extraction, his tooth was the only one pulled on that day. And the trash was new from that day. So the tooth in the trash can was 100 percent Danny's tooth. Through the Tooth DNA evidence, Danny Rowling was linked to the Gainesville murders and he was formally charged with five counts of murder in June of 1992. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. And I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in the detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Danny made a few friends while he was in prison, and and if you can believe it, he even found love. In 1992, he began to correspond through letters with a woman named Sandra London who was a true crime writer. She and Danny would co-author a biography together of Danny's life called Making of a Serial Killer. In a stretch of utter weirdness, in February of 1993, the couple announced their engagement. Weird, huh? But wait, it gets weirder. One of Danny's friends in Florida State Prison was a man named Bobby Lewis. Bobby Lewis was a convicted murderer who had killed a drug dealer in the 1970s and had the claim to fame of being the only inmate on Florida's death row to ever escape. Thankfully, this Bobby Lewis guy was caught and locked back up, right? But clearly, Bobby Lewis was never a suspect for the Gainesville Coed murders because he was tucked away behind bars when the murders took place. But Bobby Lewis and old homeboy Danny Rowling would strike up quite a strange friendship after they met in prison. In 1993, Danny requested through prison officials to speak with investigators that were still on the case trying to solve the Gainesville murders. But he had a stipulation. His stipulation was that Bobby Lewis was going to do all the talking. Weird, right? Of course, Bobby wanted something out of it, but investigators denied him any favors. They were like, nobody, you're going to stay on death row. So investigators and prison authorities, they established a format in that Bobby Lewis would be Danny's, quote, mouthpiece. Danny had already invoked his right to counsel. So investigators had to confirm that he was willing to waive the right in order to speak with them without his attorney present. Danny and Bobby Lewis agreed to all of the stipulations that were made. Now, this interview took place in the Florida State Prison on January 31st, 1993 with Bobby Lewis and Danny Rolling on one side of the table and investigators on the other side. Now, Danny would lean over and whisper things to Bobby Lewis, who would then tell investigators what Danny had just said. Now, Danny couldn't hold himself back, though. He would blurt out more details and confirmed every single thing that Bobby Lewis told investigators that Danny had told him. Now, during this interview slash confession, Danny disclosed through Bobby Lewis how the students were chosen, his weapon of choice, how the victims were killed, and he even disclosed things that were inside the apartments of the victims. Things only the true killer would know. And here's how it all happened, according to Danny Harold Rowling. On August 24th, armed with a 12 inch K bar Marine Corps knife, and an automatic pistol. Danny broke in through the rear door of Sonia Larson and Christina Powell's apartment. He saw Christina asleep on the couch. So he stood over her body and watched her sleeping, but he didn't wake her up. He slithered up the stairs to where Sonia was sleeping, but then he waited. He was actually trying to decide which girl he wanted to have sex with. His decision was made. But one of them had to die first, so he didn't have to manage two people at the same time. He attacked Sonia first, stabbing her in the chest. Then he placed two pieces of duct tape over her mouth to keep her screams muffled. He didn't want to wake up Christina. He continued to stab her, but Sonia fought like hell. She had defensive wounds in both of her arms and a large slash across one of her legs. It was determined that she was only conscious for less than a minute and quickly died from the wounds caused by Danny and the K-Bar knife. After Sonya was dead, Danny crept back down the stairs to where Christina was sleeping. He put two pieces of duct tape over her mouth, then taped her hands behind her back. By this point, Christina was awake and probably scared for her life. Danny then cut off her clothes and underwear with the K-Bar knife, and sodomized her while threatening her life with the knife. When he was done raping her, he made her turn over, lie face down on the floor next to the couch. He then stabbed her five times in the back, immediately causing her death. Danny then posed her body and then he went back upstairs where he made the decision to rape Sonia's body before cutting off her nipples and putting one in his pocket to take as a trophy. As if this wasn't enough, he posed her body by laying it out of the bed with her feet flat on the floor, her legs spread, and her hair fanned out behind her. Less than 48 hours later, he struck again when he broke into Krista Hoyt's apartment by prying open a sliding glass door with a screwdriver. A few days prior, he had peeked in her bedroom and watched her as she toweled off and got dressed after taking a shower. Now he was inside her apartment, but she wasn't there. So Danny waited all night long. This kind of reminds me of the Canadian Colonel Russell Williams, who I covered in episode two. He's the type of guy who would do something similar. Eventually, all of Danny's waiting paid off when Krista returned home around 11 a.m. and Danny quickly struck. He grabbed her from behind and placed her in a chokehold. Krista fought with him, attempting to free herself, but it was of no use. He taped her mouth and hands like he had Krista and Sanya, threatened her with the knife and then led her into the bedroom where he forced her to lay down and then he raped her for hours on end. When he was done, he made her roll over and quickly stabbed her through the back. This ruptured her aorta and she quickly died. Danny then left her apartment and disappeared into the woods. But Danny came back to Krista's house a few hours later because he thought he had left his wallet inside her apartment. This time, while he was there, he decided that posing her wasn't enough. He used his K-bar to decapitate Krista. He placed her head on a shelf facing her own body. He then cut off her nipples and placed them next to her on the nightstand. Finally, he sat her up on the side of the bed with her legs spread open and her torso leaning forward. Then he quickly disappeared into the night. Just a day later, on August 27th, Danny used his screwdriver yet again to pry open another sliding glass door on the apartment of Manny Taboda and Tracy Paulus. Manny was sleeping in one of the bedrooms and Danny figured that if he was going to be able to rape any women, He needed to kill the big brawny man first to eliminate any threats to himself. He approached Manny and as he slept, he plunged the knife deep into Manny's chest. The knife penetrated so deep it hit his thoracic vertebrae. Manny woke up upon the first stabbing and fought like hell to get Danny off of him. Danny slashed and stabbed Manny in the arms, hands, chest, legs and face. In all, he stabbed him over 30 times. Tracy had heard the noise and had gone to Manny's room to find out what all the commotion was. She spotted Danny and ran back to her room trying to lock the killer out. Danny at some point thought she had a weapon in her hands, but it was actually a curling iron. Covered in Manny's blood, Danny followed Tracy down the hall. He broke down the door. Tracy looked at him in terror and asked, quote, you're the one, aren't you? End quote. Danny coldly looked at her and replied, quote, yeah, I'm the one. End quote. I can only imagine how terrified she was looking at that monster. Actually, in the ABC 2020 episode, one of Tracy's friends said that that evening she had actually spoke to Tracy because she was worried about all these murders happening in Gainesville. And she told Tracy to just be careful. So it was clear Tracy knew all about the Gainesville Ripper. Well, Danny grabbed Tracy, taped her mouth and hands, cut her T-shirt off, and then he raped her repeatedly, threatening her life with the knife. When he was done, he turned her over and killed her with three stabs to the back. That's when he got some dish soap, cleaned her body, and then left the apartment. In an article in the Miami Herald, twenty-one-year-old David Leroy of Ocala said that that night, Sunday night, he spent in the apartment directly above the one occupied by Manny and Tracy. At about three o'clock in the morning, he recalls, quote, "I heard a scream and a loud crash. I poked my head out in the hall, but didn't see anything." End quote. And this is really sad, right? True Crime Army. And I can't say this enough: if something is ever out of place and doesn't sound right. Just report it, phone it in. You never know what you could be reporting. And in this case, David Leroy, he probably had heard about the Gainesville killer because there had been three murders just 48 hours before. But I'm not blaming him. I'm just saying, True Crime Army, as just a general rule, if you hear something, just call the police. They can always just come and check it out. <music> According to a court opinion, Danny was indicted on November 15th, 1991 for the murders of Christina Powell, Sonia Larson, Krista Hoyt, Manny Taboda and Tracy Paulus. He was charged with five counts of first degree murder, three counts of sexual battery and three counts of armed robbery of a dwelling with a battery. On June 9, 1992, Danny entered a not guilty plea on all counts. The trial was set to start on February 15th, 1994. But when the trial was scheduled to begin, Danny changed his plea to guilty. His plea was accepted and after adjudication, he was found guilty on all counts. An interesting thing that I heard on the ABC 2020 report was that Bobby Lewis, who, mind you, is a convicted killer on death row, he actually said that he had never met or heard of anyone doing the types of things that Danny Rowling did. And he was slightly disturbed, which I find interesting that you have a a murderer who's on death row, who is disturbed by another murderer. During sentencing, the jury unanimously recommended that Danny Harold Rowling be sentenced to death for each murder. The trial court considered that there were mitigating circumstances, right? The trial court found that Danny had the emotional capabilities of a 15-year-old and that he committed the offenses while under extreme mental or emotional distress. They also considered that he came from an abusive, dysfunctional family and that he ultimately cooperated with police by confessing and pleading guilty. But despite all of the mitigating circumstances, The jury still recommended sentencing him to death for each homicide, following the consideration of all of the aggravating circumstances. The aggravating circumstances in this case are as follows. Danny had previously been convicted of a violent felony. Each murder was cold, calculated and premeditated. They were also heinous, atrocious or cruel. And each murder was committed during the commission of a burglary or sexual battery. When the sentence was announced, Manny's brother, Mario, jumped to his feet and yelled, quote, you're going down in five, end quote. As he held his hand up, displaying five fingers, a deputy took Mario by his arm and started to lead him out of the courtroom. But Mario continued, quote, do you understand that in less than five years, we have the last say we will prevail. Our children's names will be remembered over him, end quote. In an interview with 2020, Mario said that he was compelled to say something because he had heard that serial killers like to be in control. He wanted to make sure that Danny didn't get the last word. On appeal, Danny's team of lawyers attempted to have the conviction overturned because they were denied a motion for a change of venue in the original trial. Now, the defense felt that the jury couldn't be impartial because all of the press surrounding the Gainesville Ripper, except Danny and his defense made a choice to not file the change of venue request until the sixth day of the jury selection. But Florida law requires that a change of venue be filed at least 10 days before trial begins. Now, in the court opinion, Danny's lawyer was quoted as saying, quote, I have to swallow my pride and admit that I was incorrect in my original opinion that this case could be fairly tried here. End quote. But nonetheless, The appeal was denied. Danny's fiance, Sandra London, remember that true crime writer I talked about earlier? Well, she attended all of his trials. During one of the court hearings, Danny was given an opportunity to address the court. But instead of saying something to the judge who said he could say whatever he wanted, Danny turned to Sandra and started singing. What in the world? And well, I found that recording on YouTube and I wanted to play it for you today. Here it is. Rules we'll say I have to give Mr. Rowling an opportunity to have a say. You have anything you want to say, Mr. Rowling? Well, sir. Uh, I it please the court. Um, could I address the court? Sure. Say whatever you want to say. Thank you. And, uh, I recall the day. I first saw you. I reached out to say I love you, but. It- was hard to say. I couldn't touch you. So tell me, baby, what were my words? All my tears run together. Excuse me, Mr. Rollins. Down Mr. the Rollins. path you choose Mr. to follow. Mr. So tell me, baby, what were my words? All my tears run together. What were my words? All my tears run together, baby. Just just like Ray. Okay, you get one song and that's it, Mr. Rawls. We're not here so that you can address your friend. We're here for sense. Yes, that recording I found on YouTube was posted by Sandra London herself, or at least someone whose YouTube channel is named Sandra London. You can actually watch this. But during this serenade, I guess you can say, Danny, no kidding, he closes his eyes and he belts out this ballad that apparently he wrote for her right as you as you already heard the judge is trying to get him to stop and you didn't see this but before he even gets up you can tell his attorney knows he's probably going to do this because his attorney kind of like holds his hand and kind of does this shaking his head thing where he's trying to get him to not stand up and Danny's like no I'm going to stand up and he stands up and he belts out this ballade. so it's just really crazy to me that he actually got to finish that song. If I was a judge, I would have taken him or dragged him out of the courtroom because I thought that was so disrespectful. But the whole time that he's singing this song, Sandra London looks like this giddy 13 year old whose crush just notices her. I mean, she just always has like this stupid looking grin on her face. The judge eventually says, all right, well, listen, we're not here for you to sing a song to your friend. We're here for sentencing." And eventually Danny sits back down. It's just if you get an opportunity to go watch this video, go watch it because it's insane. And in any event, in an interview with the press outside of the courthouse, Sandra just gushes on and on about how excited she was about her boo thing, serenading her and that she knew he was going to do something special for her. And then she repeats over and over again that the song was copyrighted, which I'm like, What? She's a real prize, right? But the weird thing is that she's not the only true crime writer or true crime enthusiast who goes on to be engaged to a freaking serial killer. Well, following Danny's failed appeals, he was finally put to death on October 25th, 2006, by lethal injection. He was allowed an in-person meeting with his brother and a pastor prior to the execution. And during the meeting, he handed the pastor a note. On the note was a full confession of the killings of Tom Grissom, his daughter, Julie, and Tom's grandson, Sean, from November 4th of 1989. Tom's son, Scott Grissom, said to 2020 that the investigators told him that they were 100% sure that Danny was responsible for his family's murders. But since he had already been sentenced to die in Florida, they decided not to pursue additional charges. Well, on the day of the lethal injection, as Danny was strapped down on the gurney and the needle was placed in his vein, he didn't offer any apologies to the 47 family members in attendance. He closed his eyes and in typical Danny Rowling style, he started to sing a song. In this case, it was a hymn and it said, quote, None greater than thee, O oh Lord, none greater than thee." End quote. Edward Humphrey was completely exonerated of any wrongdoing for the Gainesville murders. He spent time in the Florida State Mental Health Hospital, and once he was released, he worked extremely hard to get his life back on track, eventually graduating from college. In Gainesville, there is a stretch of road where students from the University of Florida, they paint graffiti along a concrete wall next to a busy road. And every year it changes, right? But there is one panel that is maintained by the fraternities at the University of Florida, and it has stayed there unchanged for more than 30 years. It is a wall that is painted all black with the word remember painted in red letters along one side. And next to that are listed the names. Sanya Larson, Krista Lee Hoyt, Christina P. Powell, Tracy Paulus, and Manuel Taboda. It's nuts to learn that Danny Rowling was the inspiration behind the cult favorite Scream movie. But sure enough, it is. Kevin Williamson actually recalls being home alone when he saw a news report about the Gainesville Ripper. According to Lindsay Romaine of Nerdist.com, when Kevin looked at his window, He realized it was open, and then he realized how easy it would be for someone to get into his home to hurt him. But instead of fear, this spawned Kevin's creativity, and soon the script for Scream was born. But unlike in the movies, the eight victims in this story never got to go home after it was all said and done. What do y'all think? I had never heard of the Gainesville Ripper before one of my listeners, actually Myrtle, recommended it to me. And I cannot imagine being a freshman at college and 5 coeds being murdered at my university. I would have been petrified. And the idea that this even occurred would likely cause me to switch schools completely. But I don't know, maybe that's just an overreaction for me, but I can only imagine the fear and the terror going through these college students. It's It's really sad. So I highly encourage you all to go out and watch that ABC 2020 special on the devil in Gainesville. Even though the episode ran over 30 years after the murders, you can still see and hear the pain in the victim's families' voices and in their eyes. It is a truly tragic story and I am glad that at least some justice was done and that that danny rolling guy is no longer breathing the same air as us all right y'all i'll be back next week with a brand new episode until then you can find me on social on instagram at military murder podcast this show was created by mama margot productions and produced in collaboration with my boot camp and hire fan club members our executive producers are ryan r alicia h falcon 13 nicole g and Tina S., owner of Stitch 6-6 Embroidery. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Let's on another podcast.